What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Alex Kruger is an economist and trader. In this conversation, we talk about the Federal Reserve, inflation, interest rates, macro environment, various asset prices, market sell-offs, and, of course, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. I really enjoyed this conversation with Alex, and I hope that you enjoy it as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I first want to talk about our sponsors. First up is LMAX Digital, the number one institutional crypto exchange. They offer clients the deepest pool of crypto liquidity on the planet, underscored by a 100% uptime track record through volatility spikes. They leverage LMAX Group's liquidity relationships and ultra-low latency technology. LMAX Digital is the market-leading solution for institutional crypto trading and custodial services. If you've never heard of LMAX Digital, it's probably because you are not an institution. They have no retail, only institutions. They feature a central limit order book streaming spot Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and Bitcoin Cash, all paired with US dollars, Euro, and Yen. LMAX Digital. They're secure, they're liquid, and they're trusted. Learn more at lmaxdigital.com slash pomp. Again, lmaxdigital.com slash pomp. This episode is brought to you by 8sleep. 8sleep is the single best product that I have purchased over the last three years. It completely changed my life. I'm not joking. Pay attention. The Pod Pro cover, which goes over your mattress by 8sleep, is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. You can go to 8sleep.com slash pomp to check out the Pod Pro cover, and you save $150 at checkout. They currently ship within the United States, Canada, and the UK. Now, I told you, it changed my life. It helps me sleep deeper, helps me sleep longer. I feel much more refreshed, and I have better energy. You want to know how I have relentless energy every single day? Because I sleep on an 8sleep. Seriously. Go check it out, 8sleep.com slash pomp today. This episode is brought to you by OKX. OKEX has dropped the E to become OKX. Founded in 2017 with a mission to deliver a cutting-edge crypto trading experience, OKX, the world's second-largest crypto exchange by trading volume, has since expanded its scope alongside the wider industry, adding features from all corners of crypto. If EX is about exchange, X is about intersections. Cross-chain, cross-functional, cross-platform, an interoperable future that's not siloed into isolated platforms and blockchains. The name change and the new look and feel represent OKX's ongoing move towards decentralized finance. With OKX's decentralized platform and Web3 wallet, MetaX, you have full custody over your crypto. Connect MetaX in your browser or within the OKX app to explore DeFi, NFTs, and play to earning gaming, the world's most powerful crypto exchange. Whether you're just learning about crypto, you're a seasoned DeFi degen, an NFT enthusiast, or a pro trader, you're all invited to a better future. Go check it out today and let me know what you think. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I've got Alex here with me. I'm super excited about this. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I figured a great place where we could just jump right into the conversation is uh, we lived through about 18 months, almost two years of the Federal Reserve just pumping asset prices to the moon. And it seemed like everything from equities to real estate to crypto, everything just went up. Uh, and over the last, let's call it six months or so, since November, uh, it feels like the Fed's in control and we're going the other direction now. And they're just pushing everything down. 
you've been talking a lot about this idea of a macro bottom. And I thought that maybe you could just explain what exactly is a macro bottom and how do you think about the importance of a situation like that when asset prices are in somewhat of a free fall as they are now? Mm. Uh, basically, the macro bottom is uh, it's just the bottom. It, it, it's, it's the idea of identifying the point where, where it, it's, uh, prices don't fall anymore. Uh, as uh, basically, in, in contrast with a local bottom, which is something you can trade and you can you can ride for maybe one percent or ten or thirty percent, but uh, you have absolutely no certainty that prices will not come back down. So when we're in such a massive correction as right now, a uh, proper bear market, uh, the idea of the macro bottom is is the point where actually you put your chips back in. And uh, there is an extremely high likelihood that you're not worried about prices uh, and your net worth falling any longer, basically. Uh, It's just that. And uh, for me, the importance here is because we've fallen so much. And and there is so much fear in the market that uh, it's important to try to identify where, where is that point where I can feel safe. Basically that. Got it. And so uh, and it, yeah. w- when you start to think about this idea of identifying the bottom, there's obviously a ton of people on the internet who uh, run around and they yell bottom, bottom, bottom all the time. Uh, but usually it's not backed up with any sort of intelligent analysis. And frankly, it's just people tweeting, but not actually trading. Uh, you spend your time actually putting real skin in the game and making investment decisions based on your opinions. Uh, and so you put out this thread about why, like the intelligent analysis behind why you believe uh, in this macro bottom thesis. And the first was around the Fed and some of the language that they're starting to talk about uh, and a number of Fed officials. Describe a little bit about what you're seeing there with the language and, and kind of the talk track that the Fed's using now that signals, hey, we may be somewhere near a bottom. Yeah, um, uh, sure. Uh, th- the point basically is that you can't really find the bottom in this market. Uh, based, it's not about levels, and it's not about Fibonacci's, it's not about, uh, I don't know, volume or whatever RSI indicator or, or anything. It's really about the Fed. And until the Fed doesn't pivot, until they don't change uh, their current stance, uh, there is a very high likelihood that prices keep on going down. That's basically the point. So uh, for, for those of us who are trying to basically find a point in which to deploy not just a small part of our, of our capital to, to get into a trade in and out, we just want to actually get in and hold, uh, basically the point where you go all in, uh, that's, that's the macro bottom. And for that, what we need is we need the Fed to change their stance. Uh, changing their stance um, basically means them signaling that they've tightened a lot and it's not something that we can we can't uh, we can't anticipate what is, that's going to happen unless one has a view on at which uh basically how inflation is going to evolve in the coming months because the fed has and and it's all about the fed right this is the fed and the driver's seat i would even say that the fed right now uh they drive about 80 percent of the price action in the market uh, maybe a little bit less in the last couple of weeks because now the, the market is shifting a little bit more from the Fed towards recession fears. That's a separate topic. But uh, back onto the Fed, they, they've said very clearly that they plan to keep on hiking and tightening until they see many months 
of inflation coming down. So it's about inflation. And I, I would love to know out there someone who has a very good view on inflation and a, an excellent track record at forecasting inflation. Uh, I don't know. I don't think that person exists. If that person exists, I would love to meet him. Um, but um, that's the issue is we don't know. And uh, realistically, I mean, the, the point is not even the Fed knows. So how can we know when that's going to happen? So what we are doing out here is basically trying to fish when the Fed is going to pivot. Uh, and there is two ways to do it. One is by watching inflation numbers. And the other one is by, by listening to the Fed. Um, yeah. And so the thought process, I think, in the market has been, uh, or at least what they're pricing in, 10 uh, interest rate hikes through the end of the year, 300 basis point interest rate by the end of the year. Uh, my belief, whether uh, is correct or not, has been we'll never get 10 hikes, we'll never get to 300 basis points. And we're actually likely before the end of the year, uh, pretty high confidence that we will not see rate hikes throughout. They'll at some point call off the dogs and, and they'll uh, plateau on that. But actually, I probably have more confidence than most uh, that we may get an interest rate decrease. They may cut rates before the end of the year, especially given that midterm elections are coming. And the only thing worse than high inflation going into a midterm election is actually a recession. Uh, and so they'll get some political pressure to kind of give the market a little bit of a uh, you know positive feedback loop of saying, hey, this isn't going to be interest rates up forever. Here is you know something to give back to the market and get people excited again. Do you agree with that thesis? Do you disagree? Do you have any no, opinions? I, I, I disagree uh, uh, completely. Okay, let's hear. Um, I, I have to, I have to say, by the way, it's it's a thesis that a lot of smart money and a lot of smart people out there uh, have. Uh, people I respect uh, greatly, but I, I disagree with the thesis because uh, inflation is uh, is is extremely high, and uh, we it's so high that we we, we are. Uh, arrive to a point where basically nothing else matters because if inflation doesn't come down, inflation expectations get unanchored, they de-anchor, which means basically people start expecting inflation to sustain in time and uh, we get into an inflationary spiral where everybody starts demanding higher wages and companies start increasing prices in anticipation of higher wages and basically it never ends. So the, when, when we get to these extreme circumstances, the Fed's sole role becomes bringing inflation down. It's not about maximum employment and having stable inflation. It's solely about inflation. So um, what, what uh, you're saying, I think, is uh, very feasible, and I really hope it happens if inflation comes down fast enough. That's, that's the key thing. And there is something else which is basically, unfortunately, the Fed hasn't specified what fast enough is. That's it's kind of tricky. It's not that you see it coming, coming low and, and um, beating certain numbers and you go like, oh, we're safe. They haven't said it. Some have, have said that they're basically expecting 3%, sorry, high, high 3% in a year, some four, some four and a half, but they're not really telling you, there's not like, there's no consensus view of what to of how much the inflation has come down for them to, to, to turn. Uh, my, uh, according to my estimates, is basically, I think that if we hit about 4% by year end, uh, which basically means year-on-year uh, -year inflation coming down about 33 to 25 basis points on average every month from here till then, then the Fed is fine. Then the Fed 
can basically take the, the, the foot off the gas. And uh, we will go basically from 50 basis point hikes to 25 or no hikes. And when that happens, then we, then we go up. <laughs> that's what we want to see. Then we get easy markets again. So another uh, thing. That's, another uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, I wanted to say so on, on, infl- on, on elections. This is actually a very interesting topic because a lot of people talk about uh, how uh, the Fed is going to go uh, soft around elections. And uh, I am on a, I'm of the personal view that it's subjective. It's 100% debatable. But my view is that uh, elections really rarely matter for the Fed. It's, it's in, in only very extreme circumstances, basically, when you have Trump around, that they matter unless they don't matter. And specifically this year, where basically you have uh, the GOP that's going to win both houses, highly likely, and you have uh, Biden that's going to be uh, by himself. And odds of Biden being reelected are very low, and Powell is already reconfirmed. So I don't think elections are going to matter for the Fed. I think they matter, but for a different reason. Yeah, that's a fascinating uh, way to kind of uh, clarify how important the elections are. Uh, another thing that you've pointed out is that the equities, public equity market, it's been on an absolute losing streak that has been pretty much unseen in almost 100 years, I think since 1932. Describe yeah, a little bit more and explain <laughs> this. It's how to explain this. It's painful. <laughs> it's, 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 it's quite a spectacle. I mean, we've had, uh, what is it now? It's uh, uh, seven weeks in a row of uh, just seven weeks of red candles price just down and down and down. You have absolutely no pullback, so they're very, very brief. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know what else can I say. It's, it's, quite, it's quite unique. And it's also very different than, than usual, like usual crashes, because usual crashes, when you crash this hard, you have volatility going way higher. Like in, uh, I forgot exactly what the number was, but uh, say in 2020, we got the bigs going to, I think 85 or something like that. Um, Given the crash, the market crash, I would expect that the mix, which is basically the implied volatility on uh, S&P options, uh, one, one month options basically to be, uh, to be in the 40s or the 50s and, uh, and price to move way more sharply, having two-way, two-way price action. Like, like basically like in March 2020, uh, which was uh, very, it was like this, you know, it was very violent two-way. Uh, this is just a very, it's like a drip. Like you know, you know, like acid in your face if you're long. It uh, uh, it is pretty incredible to just watch the slow bleed, right? Especially yeah. if uh, investors um, are new and their kind of quote unquote bear market experience was the 2020. You know, go down the elevator, come right back up even faster. Uh, it feels like this is incredibly painful. Uh, that leads me to this idea of sentiment. And uh, sentiment is very bad. Uh, some of that's because of the slow be- bleed. Uh, some of that is in quantifiable metrics like you know fear and greed indexes, et cetera. Uh, how do you think about sentiment and the actual measurement of it p- as part of your investment um, kind of process? I usually go with price, actually. Uh, I tend to ignore all the indicators. Um, I, I, in this thread you mentioned, I posted the Bank of America um, um, bull bear, uh, fear and greed uh, uh, indicator because it's something that uh, smart money watches a lot. It's like, it's, it's one of those that everybody's watching. 
Uh, if it were not because of that, and it were not because it's, it's really extreme, an extreme measure, uh, basically uh, on, on uh, one and a half reading, uh, which is something you barely ever get, I would not be looking at that for sentiment. And I would be mostly focused on, on volume and, and the extent. It's kind of like a matter of feeling. Uh, like, say, uh, in, in crypto, uh, my measure of sentiment is actually funding rates. Uh, different measures of funding rates from basically short-term or perpetuals or uh, futures. Um, then you can look at options as well, but it's, it's mostly funding rates. Uh, I'm not looking at uh, the same indicator that you actually have that is available for, uh, for crypto. When you start thinking about uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, given this macro backdrop, are you surprised uh, that it's gone down so much? Are you surprised that it hasn't gone down more? Like, what's your general read if I told you, hey, equities are going to sell off for seven, eight, you know, 10 weeks, uh, and there's going to be all this pain in the public equity market, and Bitcoin goes down, I don't know, 55, 60%, uh, and the other coins do what they've done? Like, would you be surprised in either direction? Uh, not at all. Uh, correlation is really high, and it, it just makes sense. Uh, it's it's I'm not surprised at all. Uh, Bitcoin has been a, a risk asset, um, uh, basically a, a high beta uh, risk asset, highly correlated with risk assets since March 2020. And uh, since then, it became one, and, and that correlation has been getting higher and higher. And uh, since uh, literally December this year, it started basically trading like equities like tech. And uh, I think to break that correlation, what the market needs is flows. Flows, basically inflows or outflows, uh, break those correlations. Um, specifically, um, that correlation actually has only broken twice in the last, uh, in 2022. Uh, one was on March uh, 3rd, two days before the Fed. And uh, the other day was actually yesterday. You could say it's the same as today, but no, not really. So it's, it's quite striking that, that it, it trades hand in hand. Uh, another thing I'd like to say here is uh, if you look at basically correlation and how things have been evolving, uh, Bitcoin and, and basically the crash that happened because of Luna, uh, Bitcoin would be trading 10 to 15% higher uh, right now if it were not because of Luna. And Ethereum 20% higher. And I think we will be seeing different price action. What I see right now is actually something that it makes me half sad and half very concerned seeing that the market trades like it's like dead. It's, it's, it's not moving. So it, it's trading more like, uh, more like 2018 where there was very little liquidity and basically you had these BARTs all the time because basically any big order would just make it uh, flash it up or down. Um, we stopped seeing BARTs uh, for a long time. Now we are not seeing the BARTs. So we have that, uh, that kind of anemic price action which on the other hand makes me think that as soon as we have just a little uh, aggressive uh, buying from say uh, Bitcoin OGs, uh, some Bitcoin whales, uh, we could see one of these candles where you have Bitcoin up in, in like seven, eight percent in a matter of like 60 minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's fascinating to think about that illiquidity uh, in the market. And I think part of it is um, there's a metric that uh, I look at, a lot of other people pay attention to, which is how many of Bitcoin uh, have not moved in the last 12 months. So right now it's you know over 65%, over 12 million coins. What level of importance do you put on on-chain metrics like that? So you talked a little bit about like the trading volume, but what do you look at or are there any things that you find important with the actual on-chain metrics in the, in the Bitcoin or crypto world? 
for on-chain, I like to try to identify uh, inflows, um, oversized inflows into exchanges in real time. It's really hard. I've only actually, to, to be honest, I only actually managed to do it once in a way that helped me uh, significantly uh, perform. Um, aside of flows, the thing about flows is that it's very hard because you never know if it's actually people uh, sending Bitcoin or ETH or whatever into an exchange to dump or they're trying to hedge or they're actually trying to make people panic. There's, there's so many ways you can interpret that. On, on the other hand, um, on, on other, uh, other on-chain um, uh, data, excuse me, I, I haven't found um, any statistical significance actually. I've I run some tests and I haven't, I haven't found any way it helps me in the market. So I think it tends to be something that it's very useful to tell us what happened, but it's not useful to tell us what's going to happen. And uh, I'm 100% open to be wrong on this. In fact, if somebody can prove me wrong and show me, uh, it would be amazing because it would uh, make me a, be a better trader, you know? Yeah. No, the answer is, in short, it's like I, I'm not looking at the on-chain data. It's something I read, but no. Yeah. When, when you think about going back to the Fed for a second, um, one of the things that uh, I think you have pretty strong beliefs on, and I, I tend to agree with, is they're going to continue to do what they're going to do until inflation comes down. Uh, is there a world where you could see them increasing their target inflation rate? So rather than the 2%, like, is there a world where they would actually say, you know what, screw it. Now our target is 3% uh, or something like that. It's a great question that, in fact, I was, I was just talking about it with some guys uh, today. And um, I have to admit, it's an idea that I entertained for three weeks this year and it cost me a lot of money. <laughs> um <laughs> No, I don't think it's possible. I really don't think Why it's not? possible. I think something that can happen um, because um, they would, it would be going against their goals of uh, keeping inflation, inflation at 2% uh, on, the, on the long run and inflation expectations anchored around that 2%. Uh, if once you start uh, uh, loosening your, uh, your targets, and especially in this environment, uh, they would lose credit. Let's put it this way. It's not that they would lose. Is there is a high likelihood they would lose credibility and get inflation to get out of control. So that's why I don't think they would do it. But what, something I think they could do, which is along the same lines, and it would be uh, not as uh, bullish, but almost, uh, well, no, let's say half as bullish, is basically changing their uh, backwards-looking inflation target that they have in place right now. This is something the Fed implemented in 2020. Before, it was just 2%. Now it's a backwards-looking measure. So the backwards looking measure means that basically it's not just about inflation coming down to 2%, it's about the average of X amount of time to come down to 2%, which means that basically because of the last year and a half, say, say we get 2% in 2024, as the Fed is saying, that would mean that in the prior uh, few years, uh, inflation uh, uh, in 2021, uh, in 2020, I think it was 4%, 4.1%, something like that. 2021, say 7%, this year is going to be, say, 4% uh, uh, year on year, right? Which means basically the average gets higher. So it's not like 4, 7, 4, 2 on 2020, uh, sorry, 4 uh, this year, say 2.5 in 23, 2 in 24. Yeah, if you're just looking, if you're looking at the average of the past, you're not yet at 2. So if the Fed changes that 
and, and makes a public statement about that change, that would be uh, extremely uh, bullish. It's something, if you see that happen, just go out there and go all in. Because <laughs> we're, we're going up, you know, like 10% like this. Yep. What, one of the people that uh, I've recently talked to is a guy named Brent Johnson. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not. He runs Santiago Capital, uh, and he's been talking about this idea of uh, the dollar milkshake uh, theory, which really is just the Fed prints money. It causes other central banks around the world to uh, print more money, and all of the demand gets sucked back up into uh, the U.S. economy, and therefore the dollar strengthens on a relative basis to uh, foreign currencies. Is that something that you subscribe to as like a, a macro uh, theme right now, or, or are there other ways that you view uh, the relationship maybe between various central banks? Um, no, it's not. Uh, I'm, I'm not aware of the I mean, I heard the, the name. Uh, I've never looked into it. Uh, but the way I look at the dollar, actually, it's more about uh, interest rate differentials. Uh, so it's, it's less about balance of payments and more about monetary policy. So I'm, I'm looking at that on one hand. And on the other, I, I, I tend to not pay much attention to the dollar itself, uh, the dollar index, because if you think about it, the dollar index is 57%, uh, 57.6 to be precise, percent of the euro. So it's, you're, you're literally letting the euro dollar influence your view on uh, Bitcoin, which to me doesn't make much sense. Uh, I see the dollar more as a, a, a derivative of things that really matter, which are basically interest rates and, and across uh, different timeframes. When you look at interest rates, uh, one of the things that's played out over the last couple of days, which I find fascinating, is uh, for the last couple of weeks, maybe even months, Federal Reserve's been saying, hey, we're going to tighten, we're going to tighten uh, kind of all this tough uh, tough talk, uh, and that they're going to raise interest rates. Uh, from there, the ECB said, well, we're going to break from the Fed. We're going to keep our negative interest rates, and, and we're not going to kind of follow uh, suit. That changed over, I don't know, maybe the last couple of days, frankly. And now the ECB is saying, hey, we're going to go from negative interest rates back to a 0% interest rate, and maybe even positive. So we're going to now go ahead and capitulate to our strategy, follow the Fed. How do you think about that situation? Is it overblown? Or is there a great importance that you assign to something like that? Um, no, because they, they're not going to change by much if they change their, their stance. Uh, that's on one hand. On the other hand, the fact is uh, uh, it's the Fed in the driver's seat. It's not, it's not the ECB. It's not the BOJ. Uh, the, the Bank of China would matter a lot, but the ECB barely matters. And uh, 25 basis points more, 25 basis points less. Uh, for uh, risk assets, uh, U.S. risk assets and, and Bitcoin, which is what I care about. Um, uh, it doesn't make much of a difference. Yeah. Um, so it's, it, the, the point, what I'm trying to say is like, there's so much information out there. I rather focus on the things that actually move price significantly of things that I'm trading and things I have exposure to and, and not, not other things. Like, for example, when, when, when COVID ceased to be a thing that moved the market, I just push it aside. I'm not looking at COVID anymore. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating way to kind of view the world. Uh, another thing that you've talked about that I found uh, just really interesting was this idea of the midterm elections will be bullish, uh, but not because of the Fed. And you tweeted and said midterms will likely be bullish as odds are very high. Republicans will win both the House and the Senate. Equity markets historically love a Democratic president and a Republican Congress combo. Talk a little bit more about this and, and how much weight or uh, importance do you put on uh, that specific historical analysis? I think it's a minor 
a minor variable. Uh, again, it's like, let's say right now it's 70% uh, uh, the Fed, 20% uh, uh, inflationary fears, uh, recessionary fears, and 10% uh, is something else. Uh, in in uh, the midterms would fall into that something else one month before the midterms. In, in the meantime, they are completely relevant. But uh, basically, once we get there, um, it's uh, basically it's a historical a, a statistic that uh, the uh, stock market has a tendency to uh, uh, sharply overperform when you have a democratic president with either a Congress that is split or is Republican. It's a very sharp overperformance. So uh, I think that when we get there, especially in a scenario in a, in a, in a market where basically everything is trashed, we are all depressed or most of us are uh, depressed and, and downbeat and basically going out there looking for, give me something. Market, please give me something. This could be very big in that sense. That could be the something that, that gets things going and, and gets people optimistic again. Yeah. What, what does your portfolio look like right now? When, when you think about the current environment, how are you allocating capital? Is it all in uh, risk assets? Are you all in cash? What, what's the mix? Right now is 70% ETH and the remainder is cash. And most of it is short term. Your entire um, portfolio, 70% is in Ether and 30% yeah. is in cash. I think ETH has uh, basically um, a very high likelihood to outperform Bitcoin because of the merge uh, in the coming months, uh, months plural, um, like say from here until the, until the year end on one hand. Uh, on the other hand, I think anything that is altcoins in this market is, is gambling, especially there's a lot of uh, people that are trying to exit the market, uh, a lot of uh, fear, which means that uh, anything that is uh, relatively liquid, uh, you can suffer basically like, uh, I mean, this is going to be an extreme case, but you look at what happened with COPE today. COPE is a, a small uh, DeFi project, a Solana DeFi project that basically today like a year ago was trading eight, today was trading, uh, I don't know, 70 cents or something like that uh, in the sense. Uh, and uh, the team just basically went out there and dumped 10% of their supply and uh, crashed the price by 70%. So when you are in, in uh, when you, when we are in, in, in altcoins, uh, in, in illiquid assets, and it's, it's not binary, you know, it's like things get more and more and more liquid, it's like a spectrum. Uh, the more illiquid, the harder probability that we suffer something that we can't really hedge against, we can't really trade it. It's just people with uh, more information than us that can destroy our pieces completely. So I'm quite concerned about being on outs at, at present. Um, and I think ETH offers a great, great way to trade uh, risk at the moment. Um, why 70%? Because basically I'm trading for a reversal. Uh, that's why it's it's uh, mostly uh, most of that is not a position that I'm holding is uh, a trade. So basically I have stops. So if things go bad, unfortunately, I'll be uh, getting out of that position, uh, part of that position at a loss. So what do you put in terms of odds that the merge happens before year end? Because let me explain this way. I think the ETH community would say, very high odds. I think the Bitcoin community say very low odds. And that's just the nature of tribalism, et cetera. Like, how do you think about what the actual odds are that that occurs this year? I think it's about 90%. Uh, 
Um, the ETH community is talking about August, I think is more realistic. They have a tendency of always being late. So I think October to November and, and some, something that happened and, and basically things getting delayed again, it makes sense. So that's why I'm saying somewhere between August, uh, sorry, October and November. Um, I think that makes sense. And I, I put the likelihood of it being really this year, extremely high. Uh, the thing I'm concerned about is there's two things. One is, I mean, I think it's, I hope it doesn't happen, but it, I think it's very real that let's say 30%, 50%, 60, I don't know the probability, but there's a real uh, scenario where basically we go for a repeat of 2018, basically uh, Q4 and crypto just collapses. Uh, hope doesn't happen, can happen. Um, so uh, in, in that scenario, the merge is going to be absolutely relevant. Nobody's going to care about it on one hand. On the other hand, uh, if uh, basically we, if we're in a proper foro bear market and as this continues, um, uh, activity in the Ethereum uh, blockchain is going gonna to be very low. So the, uh, the, 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 the yield that we're going to get on, on ETH is going to be considerably lower and it's not going to be as attractive. So it's kind of like a feedback loop, no? When you think about investing today, uh, you're a trader and everything you just described, you're analyzing the crypto market. How much time do you spend in crypto versus in like traditional macro uh, type assets? Uh, used to be 50-50 until um, um, March 2020. And uh, more specifically, since uh, uh, April 2020, it became 100% crypto. Really? So you and, don't even. Uh, I was uh, I was happy to be able to ignore mostly uh, um, stocks because honestly, to you know, like having to listen to Powell and 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 to the Fed and to all this uh, economic data with the level of detail I'm I'm doing right now, it's not really enjoyable. It's just something the market is forcing me to do. Um, so 2020, 2021, um, we could basically keep that on the on, on you know on the sidelines. And uh, now, unfortunately, we're trading risk. We're trading equities. So it's right now. Even though I'm 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 focused strictly on uh, on crypto, um, the macro is driving crypto, and equities are driving crypto. So it's kind of hard to say what the split is because it's I'm trading one thing, but I'm I'm following the other. When you think about the crypto ecosystem, how many assets have enough volume and? Uh, you think traders around the world actually could trade. So they don't give a shit about the long-term, you know, uh, uh, kind of viability or whatever. They're just traders. They're just looking for volatility uh, and volume. Is that a universe of five, 50, 5,000? Like how big is that universe that's actually tradable assets? Institutional, I would say we are talking about two, it's usually just Bitcoin and ETH. And every now and then, Sol, Solana has enough volume, or other ones have enough volume, and basically they get liquid. But if you look about it, I mean, uh, being a very large fan in this market is actually pretty pretty tough because uh, they can't get out <laughs> of, of many of these positions. Uh, Bitcoin and ETH is different. Um, it's just B B C and ETH. Yeah, it's um, it, it's pretty incredible. Uh, just how much volume is concentrated in those two, uh, those two names. Um, one of my last questions for you, I guess, is when you think about these markets, uh, Bitcoin, crypto, how much of it is all one trade 
with equities, the Fed, and like, it doesn't matter if you're looking at macro traditional assets or you're looking at crypto, you got to understand what the Fed's doing. As long as the Fed is uh, doing a certain action, you pretty much know what all these assets are going to do with high correlation to each other versus you think there will be some sort of decoupling uh, and, and there will be some, you know, maybe alpha or whatever that can be determined based on the, right. uh, the industry or asset that you select. Right now is between 70 to 90 percent. Uh, uh, depends on the time frame, but it's between 70 to 90 percent uh, uh, risk assets, which is mostly mostly uh, stocks. I mean, on the on the traditional finance side, everything moves together, right? Or usually does. So sometimes it's uh, uh, rates driving. Some uh, very rarely, but sometimes it's dollar driving or dollar CNH or um, you know tech or some some uh, uh, value to growth uh, or uh, growth to to value or rotation. Um, but it's, um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, 70 to 90%, uh, right now is risk assets. So traditional finance, uh, stocks, uh, the remainder is, uh, crypto specific. And in that, uh, area, I mean, it's really, it's, it's about, for example, sometimes like yesterday, uh, Bitcoin can do whatever it wants. Uh, and, uh, also you have to be looking at, at, uh, levels, uh, where to get out, uh, where to hedge. Uh, where you may have stop runs, um, even even if uh, Bitcoin is following or going hand in hand with the Nasdaq, the uh, the place where to put a trade is going to be very Bitcoin specific because you can look at the chart and you can estimate uh, based on the, uh, basically where the uh, liquidations stop runs are going to be happening uh, based on charts or basically there's some tools uh, as well that can help uh, traders identify. Where, where there's a higher likelihood of uh, a stop run. A stop run basically is like discontinuity in price. It's like you're going down, 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 and then you hit a point, stops get triggered, and, and you flash. Um, so you don't want to get in or you don't want to get out until it flashes. That's the idea. It's... um. Uh, it's pretty incredible when you start to uh, to really kind of think through the dynamics at play here. My, my last question for you is: When you think of risk in this market, you're 100% focused on uh, kind of the crypto market. Uh, you're incredibly experienced. You have a whole bunch of data points that you're looking at. How do you underwrite the risk, and where do you see the highest risk in the market as you're allocating capital? The highest, the highest risk in, in, in what regard? Either in terms of uh, the crypto market itself, so things like uh, the Luna situation, uh, w- whether there's other risks that you have identified that you're paying attention to, uh, or in the macro environment, where you think that things could actually get worse and, and cause further problems. On, on the macro environment, there's, there's, there's three main things. One is China, uh, the other one is Russia, and the other one is inflation, right? Um, inflation, that's, that's what we're watching in inflation data when it kicks in, in the US is basically if it comes in really high, uh, just, just sell everything because it's going to get very bad. Um, on, on the Russia side, I'm, I'm basically hoping to for, uh, I mean, I, the likelihood is so low, but it's still there of uh, some sort of peace agreement. And uh, if that at any point it happens, uh, similar to what I was saying about the um, the backwards looking uh, inflation uh, for the Fed. Uh, if that happens, uh, we fly. Uh, I think on the Russia side is that side. To be honest, something crazy happened this year. Like February, I was thinking about where am I gonna hide if there is a nuke 
that's how crazy things go. I get, I don't know if you, you went through that. Did you? I literally uh, never thought I would, but I Googled what happens in a nuclear attack and uh, what are the things that you can do? Uh, And when I Googled it, I literally said to myself, I cannot believe I'm typing this into my phone, but, uh, but, but it definitely did it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. So, well, yeah, I'm not thinking about that anymore. That, that lasts like, like for three weeks or two weeks. Um, And on the crypto side, uh, there's nothing really specific at this present that, that worries me. I mean, I don't think there's, there's something too negative that can happen on the regulatory side. Uh, in fact, I think the industry at this point uh, welcomes deep down regulation. Uh, it would help greatly, for example, to get a, the infamous uh, Bitcoin uh, spot ETF approved. Um, so basically on, on, on the crypto side, is there's two main sources of risk. Uh, one is the regulatory side that I'm not concerned about. The other one is Tether. Uh, Tether as well. I've, 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 I've done so much work on Tether. I'm, I'm not worried, uh, but I do think that uh, they do a very poor job in uh, disclosing uh, uh, their balance sheet, and they should do a better job. And the market is and should continue punishing them by simply shifting away from Tether into USDC. And um, USDC is safe. I think is it's very safe. So um, yeah, I, I don't have any 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 big uh, uh, scarecrows right now that I'm looking at on the crypto side. Um, if you do, actually, I'd love to know if you have any view there. I, I think it's um, uh, the biggest risk is the unknown unknowns. And uh, I, I think that in crypto specifically, uh, that's always been true. But now um, there's a lot of things in the market where uh, back in 2016, 2017, even 18, 19, maybe, maybe even the beginning of 2020, frankly, uh, you could be, quote unquote, in crypto and you could understand what's happening with Bitcoin, what's happening with uh, Ethereum, what was happening with a couple other you know, segments of the market. And that could be one person and you could pretty much have your head wrapped around it. Today, I don't think that's possible. I don't think it's it's possible, um, given the specialization and the fragmentation, kind of vertical integration of all this stuff, uh, to understand what's happening in the Bitcoin world. You've got Bitcoin, you've got Lightning, you've got Tarot, you've got sidechains. You, you know, I mean, just like such an entire depth of a market. Then you got all the smart contract platforms. No longer is it just Ethereum. Now it's Ethereum, Solana, Binance Smart Chain, Avalanche. You know, Polkadot. Like, you just go through all that. Then you get into like NFT type stuff, and there's a whole you know Cambrian explosion there, and so. Uh, I think now what people are going to have to start doing is saying to themselves, either we have to go build a big team and like everyone take, you know, a different part of the sector, uh, or I'm going to pick my lane. I'm going to focus on that. And I'm going to do my best to understand what is the relationship between what I'm focused on and any other part of the industry. So the Luna Terra situation with, uh, with Bitcoin, great example of, it's actually really important to understand they're buying up all this Bitcoin, uh, cause it could have a positive or negative impact on Bitcoin. So if you focus on Bitcoin, you sure as hell better understand what's going on over there rather than just operate within this vacuum and say, I'm not looking at anything else regardless of what happens. Right. Cause, cause obviously that ended up yep. having a, yeah, a yeah. very material impact. You feel like that's fair? Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. The unknown unknowns, I like that. Yeah, it, it, and, and like the, the part is like it's kind of a shitty answer, right? Because like it's unknown. <laughs> it's the answer. That's the answer. <laughs> like I don't know, accepting a few just a few bright minds out there two months ago, uh, or three months ago, nobody was not even remotely concerned about Luna causing uh, what it costs. You know, that bringing actually all of crypto down with 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 it. 
I uh, I tend to think that's right. Uh, where where can we send uh, people to find you on the internet? Like, where's the best place for them to uh, to reach out to you or, or keep up to date with uh, the information you're putting out? Uh, just Twitter, just just my Twitter account, uh, Kruger Macro, uh, Twitter.com uh, slash Kruger Macro. That's the only place uh, um, I'm at. Yeah. Listen, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to do this. I um I learned a ton from your tweets, uh, and uh, and talking to you is even more fun. So uh, we'll definitely have to do this again in the future. Uh, my last question, actually, one of our sponsors is Eight Sleep. What's your sleep schedule? You, you're you're constantly paying attention to markets and crypto's twenty four seven. What's your sleep schedule? Uh, it's embarrassing. My yeah, it's it's uh, very volatile. I have uh, I have literally alarms that wake me up at any any point uh, in the night. Uh, in in the last yeah, it, it varies a lot. I mean, uh, like I'm in the I'm in the I'm, I'm in the West Coast right now, so it's it's very hard because I need to be uh, uh, no later than nine thirty in the morning Eastern, so six thirty for me. Um, very sharp, and it ideally want to be uh, by six thirty Eastern, so that's three thirty in the morning for me. So it, it makes things complicated, but yeah. <laughs> I think you're doing a fantastic job. You yeah. keep it up. <laughs> awesome, Alex. Listen, thank you so much for doing this. We'll definitely do it again in the future and uh, and just keep tweeting, man. You're, you're educating a lot of people and uh, I'm one of them and I'm enjoying it. So thank you so much. Awesome, Pump. Thank you very much, Pump. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed this one. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to try to transition to get a new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to pompscryptocourse.com. We've developed a curriculum with the top teams across the industry. It's a three-week intensive training program with over 50 events packed into that three-week time period. Go to pompscryptocourse.com to learn more, and I'll meet you guys for the next episode.